This is Solutions for Climate Revolution, a podcast by Namine Sola. My name is Francesca and my guest today is Robert Shrimp. Robert is the co-founder and CEO of Solar for Schools, where you have established a network between funders, educators, students and installers to set up solar panels on schools at no cost to the schools. And through the money the schools save through the solar electricity generated and the income stream from the panels that funds what you call energy and carbon literacy that schools currently do not teach to accelerate society towards net zero. Robert, welcome and hello. Thank you. And thank you for coming on. You have a colourful background in starting and setting up companies and making them successful businesses, working in the internet space and the solar industry. What was it that inspired you to start Solar for Schools? It's a combination of things. Uh, on the one hand, it was the realisation that whilst uh, investing in early stage technology companies uh, there were some significant challenges with making those technologies come to market and it wasn't so much there was a technology problem it was more an adoption problem and my generation i somehow seem reticent to try something new when what's currently there seems to work okay and when you then sort of emphasize the point that yes your current solution's okay but it's harming the environment they go, well, yes, climate change one day. You know, by the time it really happens, I'll be dead. Um, so you know, they don't really, didn't really take it seriously enough. Whereas uh, the next generation clearly did care. And this is all pre-Greta Thunberg, uh, making it very obvious. Um, and through personal experience of trying to persuade a neighbor to put solar panels on his school and failing, yet uh, my daughter and his daughter persuaded him to do so. Uh, and so I then realized the power of pester power and the power of children to persuade their parents to change. So that was one. The second bit was we were looking for ways of deploying existing technologies that uh, more widely. And solar is a pretty robust, solid technology. It just needs to be installed in more places faster. Uh, and if you then look at buildings, which is a nice place to install them, why is it not being installed on more buildings? And one of the reasons is that most commercial buildings, the tenant and the landlord are not the same person. So it's very difficult to sign a long-term agreement with both parties. Whereas schools, uh, the tenant and the landlord tend to be the same person, it's the council, and schools will be around for 20, 25 years, and therefore make ideal hosts for solar panels. So if you then combine the, how can we provide education to the next generation to influence their parents to change more quickly with, hmm, solar panels on schools would work, ha, Maybe we could use the revenue from those solar panels to provide that education. And when those two things, those two kind of different ideas came together, uh, yeah, it was time to give up the, the well-paid day job and start Solar for Schools. That's awesome. That's, um, I think from, from your background and going into doing something that you, you feel very passionately about, clearly, there's this, um, I mean, I talk to people about kind of going through the seven stages of grief when you start to really try to make an impact in, in sort of in climate change and helping people sort of rediscover what it what it means to, to live an eco life it's yeah it's how have you found that transition going from sort of the corporate world to, to doing something that you really care about that you that you feel so passionately about well I was very fortunate that I managed to follow my dreams most of the time so even when I was sort of in the venture world I was focused on investing in in the clean tech space and before that I was in the internet world setting up various businesses on my own so I've been very lucky to be able to always to follow my dreams 
Um, having said that, following your dreams is also very painful sometimes. And uh, it's not always rosy. And my wife thinks I'm crazy uh, and says, why don't I just go and get a normal paid job somewhere? Um, because the there are ups and downs. Yes. But, but I think when you're following your passion, you have more energy to overcome more problems. And I think I recommend to anyone out there, yes, entrepreneurship and starting a business is very tough. But on the other hand, if it's something you really want to do and really believe in, you'll find the energy to overcome the problems. Wonderfully said. Could we talk about how Solar for Schools works and how you can provide this, this epic service of sort of free renewable energy and education, despite PV actually being quite costly? And I think a lot of people think, oh, I'd love solar panels, but I can't afford them to have I can't afford to have them on my roof. How, could you explain how how you provide this service? When we first started, it was reasonably obvious that most schools didn't have the money to fund solar panels or probably had higher priorities on the use of any available resources that they did have. Um, one of the beauties about solar is that you can forecast the revenue streams from it very accurately. And therefore, it's quite easy to persuade other people to pay for the solar panels in exchange for a return, a relatively modest return. Uh, given that in the case of schools, they're also uh, delivering quite a large, a large amount of social impact. So the way it works is we've created a community benefit society, uh, which is like a club uh, to which the schools become members. And as part of becoming a member of the club, they receive solar panels on their school. There's no cost to becoming a member. Uh, they just have to qualify in terms of their school being suitable. Uh, the solar panels are then uh, installed on their school. The funds to pay for those solar panels are raised by this community benefit society. And we raise that money through crowdfunding platforms such as Ethics, uh, which provide five-year bonds to investors at 5% interest. That's about to go down a little bit. Um, those bondholders and their funds basically enable us to buy the equipment. Uh, the systems then deliver electricity to the school the school agrees to pay for that electricity, only the electricity they consume, uh, for the next 25 years. And that's the one sort of um, catch, maybe, which is a 25-year agreement. And that's pretty scary for school. And um, in exchange for signing that, 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 that agreement, at the price that's typically below what their mains price is, uh, they get the solar panels and the education. The education part is funded by the fees we receive from managing those solar panels over their lifetime. So the school doesn't have to worry about the solar panels at all. We watch them, fix them, manage them for them, and at the end of the life, remove them from the school uh, if they so wish. Um, but going back to that 25-year agreement, for a school to sign a 25-year agreement, it takes a huge amount of trust. And trust is a massive element here, and we, want, we completely underestimated when we started on this one. We thought, hey, we'll go to school and say, hey, look, you can have solar panels at no cost to you. You'll save money on your electricity bill. We'll provide you with carbon literacy education to your students at no additional cost, and you'll help save the planet. Please <laughs> sign here. We thought we'd be signing up in hordes. No. Yeah. They go, well, it's like a 25-year agreement. What happens if electricity prices do something different to what we're expecting? You know, what happens if, you know, the company who's owning the solar panels goes bust? You know, what happens if we want to change our roof? What happens if we can move out? What, lots and lots of questions. So over the years, we gradually fine-tuned an agreement that is as school-friendly as possible and embody that within the Community Benefit Society. Um, most established funders would want much more um, robust or stringent conditions on the school. For example, 
if the school shuts down, they would have to pay the residual value of the solar panels. We think that's unreasonable. Um, and therefore, we came up with a structure that doesn't make that uh, imposition on the school. And, in it, and through the CBS, and because it's a shared sort of cooperative, uh, they're sharing that risk. So from a school's perspective, they're now not joining or providing their roof to some sort of faceless organization who may or may not be there. But they're basically clubbing together to fund the solar panels. But it's not on their balance sheet. So if the projects don't work, the investors lose out, but not the school. If the projects work really well, they get the upside. So there's a profit share element in the CBS too. And, and, and coming up with that mechanism was pretty key to getting more schools across the line to signing that 25 year agreement. Uh, and equally, because we just do schools, it kind of works. You, you couldn't do this type of arrangement with commercial buildings. It's very specific to the sort of nature of schools themselves. So I think, I, I hope I've explained how it works. But just to summarize briefly, uh, we raise the money from individuals, parents, grandparents, the local community, who get 5% return on their bonds. That income is used to buy the solar panels, which are owned by Community Benefit Society. The Community Benefit Society uh, monitors and manages the systems, repays the bondholders, and any money that's left over is given to the schools. It's incredibly well thought out of, and I can, I can see your business background shining through this in, in the detail that it's it, that coming through. It's, it's incredible. I, yeah, I would... I'm going to be promoting this to all the local schools in my area through my position in the council. I think it's I think it's brilliant. Could we chat about the energy and carbon liter literacy? I think um, I don't think I can even say it. Literacy. There we go. <laughs> Is this literally sort of education which you provide through your online platform on energy, how it stands at the moment and how we plan to move to renewable and net zero and sort of the carbon that's involved in that? Could you could you elaborate a little bit? So when we first started, and as part of managing the solar panel systems, uh, we install equipment to monitor them remotely. And that provides us with real-time data as to how much electricity the school's consuming and how much electricity the solar panels are generating at any time. And with that, we can then generate some very nice uh, graphs. If you show a young person a graph of a solar generation curve, which looks a little bit like a bell, when the sun comes up, it rises, as the sun goes down, it drops. It's not a particularly interesting chart. But if you superimpose that chart with the chart of the school's consumption, then they start to ask questions like, hang on a minute, but what happens when the sun doesn't shine? Where does the electricity come from? Or what happens when the schools close and there's too much electricity? And they start asking some of the fundamental questions, which are the big challenges of going forward of dealing with intermittent renewable energy, which is the sun doesn't always shine and it doesn't always match when we want it. And, and societies. Uh, challenge in dealing with intermittent supply and also from summer winter it's one of the key learning things that students need to become aware of it's very easy to go out and and march in the streets and saying look we need to get rid of fossil fuels let's just go solar yes it's not, not so easy you need to understand some of the challenges with that and that those charts became our first program which was uh, power detectives and the idea behind that was helping students to see where their schools consuming energy and how they could reduce the consumption of electricity within the school uh, and potentially shift the consumption of electricity within the school to match when the sun was shining. So that was our first program. The thing we discovered with our program was that although it was all rather nice on the website, people didn't really use it very much. So we had to start going into the schools and showing it and demonstrating it to them. So we started preparing a bunch of uh, workshops uh, that we then combined with our annual inspection visits of the system. 
And now at some point we got to the point where we couldn't manage doing this. So we started signing up education partners and there's a bunch of very good people around the UK and other countries who love to spend time providing carbon literacy education to students, but struggle to find the funding to do it. So we basically use our budget to go in and visit a school, to fix the systems or monitor the systems, to pay them to go into the school, deliver the carbon literacy education while they're there, and while they're there, take a few photographs of our system and make sure it's running okay. So at no additional cost, we're providing a lot of additional value to the school. So that was our first and sort of second program, the workshops. Then as part of developing um, projects, we started developing online tools uh, to make that easier. And one of those tools was a tool to very easily size up the potential of a school by using Google Maps and dragging and dropping some blocks onto the roof to see how many panels you could squeeze on it. And I happened to be showing this to one of my children who got rather addicted and wanted to do another roof and another roof. And so we thought, well, hang on a minute, let's just try this out with a few students. And the same happened every time. They kind of wanted to do another roof. And that started becoming what we now call solar champions. And the idea is, and we're still working on this, is to provide the entire process where a student can find their school on our website, put some solar panels on it, maybe get some friends to put some solar panels on, compare two or, two or three different alternatives, uh, print out a petition, get their student body to sign the petition, and then take it to their head teacher. We're now also working on a presentation that they can take to their head teachers to do that. So that doesn't just teach them about the potential of solar, but also about how to communicate and sell an idea internally. And that was our second uh, program, um, Solar Champions. Um, and then the third one, which we need funding for, is called um, Zero School, Zero Carbon School. And that is a simulation game where the students make decisions around how to reduce the carbon footprint of a school to zero not just by switching everything off and walking out the door because their grades would go to zero too. So it's a balance between making sure that their educational attainment continues to rise whilst reducing the carbon footprint of the school by seeing what would happen if they added solar panels, what would happen if they added batteries, what would happen if all their parents switched to electric vehicles, what would happen if the local community switched to solar panels. Um, and by able to basically use the school as the hub of a simulation game, to then see how they could decarbonize their local area. So that's the third uh, education piece. Unfortunately, that one, we need quite a bit of funding to develop that, that, that program. Um, but we're working on a few grants and hopefully next year we'll be able to launch that too. It sounds absolutely fascinating. And it's something, although I was at school a very long time ago, I definitely want to have a go at like, yeah, putting the little blocks on the roof. That does sound like, that sounds really fun. It's like a modern day renewable green Tetris, <laughs> I guess. It is. It is. I have to stop myself doing it. I go, no, no, I've got to focus on something else. Yeah. Maybe you should monetize that somehow. I think it's, yeah, sell it to adults. Be like, if you want to play the green game, you've got a... <laughs> I think that's great. How many panels can you install in that? Yes. Yeah, maybe, maybe. That's a good idea. There's um, this element towards it as well. You said communicate and sell an idea. I think this is going to become hugely important over the next few years as our as our employment and, and jobs landscape changes hugely as we become more of a digitized and online world and economy. With your background working in the internet space, do you think the education system is currently preparing young people for the digitized future we are accelerating towards? I think that's a, uh, a difficult question to answer. Mm. And school to provide students with the tools 
that they're going to need going forward. But I also think it's not the schools. Um, it's not the schools' fault. They're doing what they can. Absolutely, it's not down. It's not teachers. It's the curriculum, I guess, that needs to be. If you think of girls, for example, we were toying with some of our educational programs into the curriculum, and assuming we managed to persuade the powers that be to incorporate in the curriculum. Uh, by the time it's then incorporated into the next version of their textbook, and that textbook ends up in a student, it's about a five to seven year process. That's yeah. a long time. So yeah, we didn't have that, do we? I mean, yeah. we, we gave up. I mean, it's like, okay, the Solar Champions that we deliver next year, six years from now, will be so different that the textbook will be completely out of date. Um, yeah. so, so I think schools are beginning to think, well, you know, do we really rely on textbooks because they take a while to evolve? Or are we moving to using more um, digital resources? When we first started, the acceptance rate of some of our online stuff was relatively low. Schools were sometimes ill-equipped to be able to use them or present, for example, the panelizer in a classroom environment. Um, I think COVID will actually dramatically change that. And I think, uh, schools and teachers have been sort of a being given a, a breathing space so i think covid will have a accelerating influence on digitization it's clear you know on the one hand um teachers have to face a situation that they were not prepared for and have done an amazing job uh, and i feel terrible i mean i feel a huge amount of empathy and sympathy for teachers who've had to go through COVID and try to sort of reinvent the way they educate. It must be incredibly difficult um, to sort of split your classroom up and try and do it digitally. And it's also incredibly difficult. Some of the schools that we work with are in relatively deprived areas. They don't have laptops. They don't have spare iPads to do it. So the school had to sort of somehow raise donations to find laptops that they could provide the students to be able to continue to give them an education. So it's really quite challenging. I mean, it's very easy to say, oh yeah, schools are sort of way behind in terms of the digitalization process, but actually it's not so straightforward to go down that route. It takes a while. And, and digital technology moves so quickly, it's been very hard for schools to keep up. And I think COVID rather forced them to go even faster than they probably would have done otherwise. Maybe that would be a good thing to Yes, this, this idea of accelerating our usage of social media and online video communication and learning offers a very interesting new landscape, which I hope we can and, and will be able to navigate and get the best of, of all worlds. Because on, on one side, I see we have reduced travel emissions and online learning platforms that can offer bespoke education to suit the individual and connecting more to our loved ones. But on the other side, there's this this looming possibility and I think we're already starting to see as you said schools in deprived areas are not able to, to access the technology and benefit from online services where those lucky enough to have access can maintain some kind of normality but at a rather unsavory consequence of us having to to use these these platforms through necessity but as a consequence, um, we are feeding the already very rich, very large social media, big data and delivery services more money and therefore contributing to increasing the equality divide even more. Um, I'm very interested to see how things are going to pan out long term. I very much hope we can start to reduce the inequality divide. This is actually an, a natural consequence of the Solutions for Climate Revolution school programme. 
uh, we are we are aiming to help young people refocus and and shift behaviors and, and raise money to benefit and uplift those who are suffering the most from the consequences of human induced warming and yeah that is yeah human induced warming is also exacerbating the inequality divide um, you're at the moment believe between two schools a week you're 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 adding to your online platform and you want to get to 2000 a week is that right yeah yeah um it sort of sounds like a pretty crazy ambition uh, but on the other hand at 2000 schools a week that's 100,000 schools a year at 100,000 schools a year it would take over 20 years to do them all ambitious on the one hand but unless we get to a reasonable scale within the next two or three years, we don't really move the needle fast enough. Um, now we don't have to do every single school because most students go through two or three schools on their way towards adulthood. But if we could do a third of the schools within the next 10 to 15 years, that would make a massive difference. Um, there are 2 billion young people going for educational establishments or hopefully going for educational establishments. Um, and that's you know, roughly a quarter of the world population, right? So they only have to influence three other people each um, to make a big difference. I think it's 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 a very powerful powerful model. I think the idea that we can, yeah, young people have this have this ability to to talk to to adults who might be disconnected and think, oh no, it's not going to be my lifetime. But they've got their their young ones sort of tugging on the bottom of their jumper, being like. Can you do something about this, please? Because this is my life, and yeah, I think it's it's yeah. I hope I, I want this to be, and I hope it's going to be a huge, a huge um, awakening and realization that young people have so much power, and that individuals as well have a lot of power in in what we say, what we do, where we choose to spend our money. I think it's yeah. I think we're we're coming into a new era of of I want to say like the rising of confidence in society that we all do matter. Because I think so many people think oh what do I matter? I'm just one person. And I think actually, no, every single one of us matters. And that's, yeah, it's very yeah, empowering. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. We, we the, when we go into schools, and that was one of my favorite parts of the job, sadly, I don't get to do it very often, is, uh, when I sometimes go in and do some of the workshops and do some of the initial uh, site reviews with students. And sometimes we'd have a drone and we fly uh, the drone around and take photographs and they all have to go and take a photograph of, the, of their building. Uh, but they often ask, you know, are, are we going to get there in time? Are we going to solve climate change in, in time? And I kind of try and sort of suppress my, my tears when, when I hear this and, and say to them, I think so. Um, remember that change is very, very rarely linear. Most change historically is exponential, one. And two, that that change is rarely been driven by a single politician. It's been driven by a mass movement of individuals and then they kind of go but you know we're students what can we do and then i then say to them well you're actually incredibly influential did you get what you wanted for christmas and they go yes so so what so, well your parents have an interest in your future well-being they just need to know what that is you you can learn about what they need to do and then you can persuade them to do that that is your power yeah, and then I didn't tell them, you know, they, they represent 2 billion people. They only have to persuade three people to make a difference. Um, and, and, and I think that that sinks through. And that's why, again, we have quite high hopes for the Solar Champions program. One of the biggest challenges we have with schools is even where the economics stack up, the school management is just too busy with their day-to-day -day, uh, operations 
for solar to rise up the priority list and the students can make the difference between whether that project happens or not. Uh, they can push it up the priority list. Um, and then the other thing is that as the students grow up, they can go on to becoming um, local partners, affiliates, uh, helping other schools to, 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 to start that voyage of decarbonization. And in order to get to 2000 schools a week, we can't do it ourselves. All we can do is provide the power tools to enable everyone else to do it. Yeah. So when we say we will do 2000 schools, it's not us, it's the tools that we'll provide and develop over the next years. We're working with potentially hundreds of thousands of, of students, volunteers, local community energy groups and partners around the world to, to, to make this happen. Absolutely. Yeah, this is what my the, the school programme at Naminate is kind of seeking to do. It's about giving and providing the tools and the information and, and empowering people to be like, you can do this. This is this is in your power to, to create the change and be the change that you want to see in the world. This is this is what you need to do. And I think it's people are. Yeah, I think there's definitely an awakening that's coming in society. And I think it's the more the more tools I think that people have to their to their disposable their disposal the more the more action that we're that we're going to seek that we're going to see I think it's 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 brilliant and I I love this idea of yeah what you what you when you say to kids what did you get for Christmas oh did you get what you wanted for Christmas and they're like oh yeah obviously and it's just like yeah young people do have that do have that kind of that persuasion that persuasive power to, to people around them and like you say if one if one young person goes out and feels empowered and has the ability to to say to, to adults with conviction you can do this because I can do it and if we all collaborate on the things that we all the little things that we know that we need to do the small things will make the big difference and I had a really interesting chat with someone yesterday um, who talks about the politics side of things and how yes individual changes are super important but without the policies it's yeah, Greta talks about in her book that we don't have any of the contracts that that we need right now to fulfil the Paris ag Agreement. So I think it's having the yeah the ability to to do things individually, but also communicate what you want to to not just to your parents but to your politicians. And I think that's yeah I I would yeah I'm I think it's it's it's, it's brilliant. And you talked earlier about it being um, sorry. All your parents who are politicians or company owners i mean you know uh, most um people in power not all of them but most of them have children or grandchildren uh, and that's an incredibly strong root of influence uh, and i think that's probably the power going and marching on the streets it's certainly a very very visual representation of that power but that's not really where that power lies I think you, you spoke in a video I saw you in where you said, actually, it's great that schools are that are protesting. We need to raise awareness about the issues of climate and biodiversity crisis. But why not put that time that you would be protesting into designing a solar system for your school and and campaigning in your community to have that done? Because that's where that's the small changes and, and the steps that's going to lead towards the big yeah. change that you want. I think that's yeah obviously we're not telling kids don't protest like protest if you want to but there's also the other option if you if you want to yeah if you wanted to do something else I think one of the things I'm trying to figure out and communicate is how can we do the things in our life and 
in all of our lives that will lead to the outcomes that we that we want so it's not so much focusing on we've got to do this to get there it's like okay what are the mini steps that will naturally result in net zero and i think yeah this uh, and that's and that's part of the, the carbon literacy education that we deliver to it's what you know, I was talking about the sort of very specific uh, tools that we have, but in the workshops and our education partners focus on what can those students as individuals do once a give them understanding of the, the challenges and problems and the impact of changing their behaviour. So there's a huge movement to sort of become um, vegetarian, and yes, that will reduce your carbon footprint a bit, um, especially if you reduce your beef consumption from Brazil. Um, you know. <laughs> lot of co ton, a lot of kilos of co2 per kilo of, of brazilian beef um, but there are other things that actually nearly have a greater impact um, the car you drive or driving at all uh, is actually much greater than switching to becoming a vegetarian um, your how you heat your building has a huge impact on your co2 footprint uh, the infrastructure around you in which you live and how that was built and managed um, cement and steel account for, I believe it's not going to get the number right, I think it's 16% of total CO2 emissions globally. Those are just those two elements. And that's basically construction industry. How do we change the construction industry to using carbon neutral materials? Uh, and that's something that requires education because if you try and legislate it, then you have the situation like in France where basically everyone took to the streets to protest against fuel tax. Now, if all the students in all the schools in France had understood the issues beforehand, they might have stopped their parents protesting it and might have encouraged their parents to embrace it. Yeah, there's. Um, I'd love to just touch on what you said about um, being vegetarian in, in transport. There's this the sort of the hierarchy that, that I'm sort of understanding at the moment is that the best thing you can do is switch to a renewable energy provider, sort of start getting your energy from renewable sources. The next thing I thought I believed was to yeah, become more plant-based and then get your meat and animal products that you do eat, make sure that they're coming from regenerative silver pasture, industrial and um, sorry, agricultural best practice. Cause we, we need Absolutely. animals. We need animals on the land because we need soil and yeah. yeah. And, then it, and then it's transport. I think it's just still misinformation out there. Maybe I haven't, I don't know. I haven't read what, what you've read yet. I'd love to share some articles because it's really, if you were saying that, travel is the next best thing and i'm thinking that renewable that um a plant-based diet is the next best thing if that makes sense because i think it, it again it depends a little bit on on at what scale you're looking at it if you look at um the relatively wealthy western world who doesn't bat an eyelid of jumping on a plane to go to visa for their summer holidays you know that's a ton each way per person family of five ten tons and you know, really, you know, going becoming vegetarian is not going to move the needle compared to that that, that trip to Ibiza. Yeah, um, a car, a normal car, doing a reasonable amount of miles, it's about four to five tons a year. Yeah, we put solar panels on a school, and we might save eight or nine, maybe twelve tons a year if it's a, a, a sunny school in the south. If it's a very large school, we might save fifty tons a year, but that's still nothing compared to the parents all turning up in their SUVs. Yeah, uh, so so cars are a big. Now, if you take it from the world's population, then agriculture as a whole is a huge, huge part of it because yeah. there are a lot of mouths to feed. And yes, meat-based diet is not great, but 
um, it's actually how we do that agriculture. And I think you were touching on sort of, there's some fascinating books now on no-till agriculture uh, and combining um, livestock with crops and multiple crops in the same field at the same time. And then using the livestock to basically keep the vegetation down uh, rather than weeding. Uh, and then, and that's a whole cycle between the livestock and, and, and the crops is absolutely fascinating. And then you can actually turn agriculture into a net absorber of carbon rather than a net emitter of carbon, which is what's currently happening when we chop down a large chunk of jungle to, to have beef growing on it and soya next to it. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's, there's definitely a huge amount that we all need to understand better. And one of the things that we encourage students is to also apply critical thinking. Um, in the modern day of the 30-second soundbite, um, you know, go vegetarian is, is a very easy soundbite. But actually, think about it a little bit harder than that. If you're going to replace your diet with lots and lots and lots of know, avocados or exotic fruit and vegetables from the other side of the world, you, know, you probably haven't made that much difference. Um, yeah, equally. Local. Yeah. Yeah, local, um, sustainable agriculture, uh, you know, electric vehicles, car sharing, in fact, particularly car sharing electric vehicles, even better. Um, there, there are lots of things that one can do which are actually quite fun and not that uh, painful. I mean, car sharing is one that takes a while to get your head around, but it, it makes a huge amount of sense. Most cars sit around for something like 97% of the time. Yeah. The carbon footprint of making that car, just to sit it there on the pavement for five years depreciating, is just nuts. Yeah. And, and, and you know, have to have it serviced and you have to go get it fixed. And I think the next generation already is more in the mode of paying for services on your mobile phone. You pay a mobile phone contract on a monthly basis. You don't physically buy the phone in many cases. So I think they are already more adept to car sharing and, and, and much lower carbon lifestyles. And so you know, that's pretty encouraging. And I think there's masses of potential to do it but we all need to make move forward in that direction. For car sharing to work, you need lots of people to, to want to do it. If six people in a village to decide to do car sharing, it doesn't work. You need 30 or 40. Yes, yeah. and I think education is, well, I know education is, is the key and the tool that's gonna drive us towards becoming, to becoming more sustainable, I think, and having more, more eco, more eco-orientated lifestyles. I think it's, um, it's this, uh, I think this dilemma of getting humanity as a whole to, to understand that um, we have to change because I think people as, as in general, we don't like change, do we? We like to, to be in routines. And I think it's um, the idea of climate change is, is terrifying and almost just don't want to think about it because it's just too scary. But I think in making it more exciting, like I think you mentioned, and making fun out of these things, like making car sharing fun, making it fun to, to, to go plant-based, making it fun to travel somewhere, not by plane. I think there's all these things that I think that um, it's so within our capacity to do. And I think it just takes this little bit of an encouragement to actually be like, change can actually be really good. Mm. I mean, I, I do you can take different extremes. We, we've, basically going to a massively plant-based diet and uh, yeah. we now have chickens in our garden which we love um yeah. and we drive an electric car which i have to say it's the most fun car i've ever owned in my life um yeah. it, you know electric cars have so much potential for joy they are more expensive to buy which is why car sharing that makes sense so rather than all of us buying you know a volkswagen golf 
um, or, or a small family car, when in between a group of us, we could share, you know, two or three Tesla Model 3s, and, you know, some, some Nissan um, uh, electric vehicles and some Renault electric vehicles. And then depending on the day, you pick the car you need. So you have a choice of interesting cars rather than sort of a compromised car. And it's a totally different way of thinking. And when you get around to it, you think, well, why would I just want to have one car when I can have a choice of cars? Yeah. And, and so, so I think there are a lot of people think, oh my goodness, I have to completely ruin my or change my lifestyle and it's going to be much, much more restrictive. And actually, it, it's, it, it can be different. I, I don't fly anymore. I take trains and I, and I drive an electric car mm. and, and we're going to drive to Spain and it's going to be 15 hours drive. And I can't wait yeah. because it's just great fun in an electric car. So, so I think there are lots of great positive things. You just need to sort of find the angle. Um, yes, definitely. It's that perspective switch. Just like to end on three quick questions, if I can, Robert. What has been the most important lesson on your journey? We, we underestimated how difficult it is for schools to make decisions and the number of people who can say no. And you only need one person to say no and a project that 15 people love stops. And we get about 200 schools a, a year in the UK, but we don't do any marketing and advertising anymore. Um, uh, and, but still about 200 schools register with us every, every year. And the percentage of those schools that successfully go solar is unbelievably small. It's a couple of percent because there's, too many people who just out of fear just don't want to push it forward it's not high enough priority and we massively underestimated that um and we've done everything possible to make it easier for them we're working with councils but unfortunately there's been a lot of people who've also abused schools in the past and sold stuff to them which were not what it pretended to be so unsurprisingly schools are suspicious and therefore trust is really, really, really important. And I think going forward, if we want to really accelerate climate change, we, we all have to be prepared to take a little bit of a risk on the one hand to, to change. Change is scary. Um, but in a way, at some point, we're going to realize that not changing is even more dangerous. Yes. Um, and I think it's trying to find a balance of how to make change easy for people to do before the world gets so scary that we're forced to do it. Yes, that's um, that's the one thing that I'm I'm really another one thing that I'm really trying to promote in the in the Namine School program. It's um, let's avoid the regret of wishing that we did more when we still could, and I think yeah. that's the real kind of thing that I think people really need to kind of switch onto. I have have I have. I know people who I consider very intelligent and, and switched on. They have great jobs in the city in London and around the world. And I still don't understand why they don't recycle. I'm just like, I know it's a small thing, but I just think in, I can't. So it's about reaching people like that as well. That it's, um, yeah, it's very important. Thank you for sharing that. What worries you the most? Where have you, where do you think we need to focus more attention? I've always said that you need a balance between three things. You, you just providing education to students on its own is not enough. It's one of the three things you need. The second thing is you need um, politicians to enact legislation that is conducive to the right behavior. Now, politicians can't enact that legislation if the population doesn't want it. 
and that's where the, the education piece comes in. If you have an educated population, governments can enact the right policies based on that knowledge. Um, and the third bit is you need a rethink of how finance works. Historically, most uh, energy projects were large projects that required concentrations of money. If you're going to do an offshore oil rig, it's, it's billions, right? That's not something that you know, 10 people are going to get together and invest in. You need a shell. You need large companies with huge processes and infrastructure. You need large pension funds to fund it. So the money had to be concentrated in large amounts to then be deployed in large amounts. One of the challenges with uh, renewable energy, and in particular distributed renewable energy, it's, it's not one, one billion pound nuclear power station, it's a uh, hundred thousand 10, 20 kilowatt systems. And, and, and how you redesign um, your financial services to deal with that because they're used to concentrating large amounts of money and then investing in a single large project. And now you need huge numbers of small amounts of money widely distributed in such a way that it's still a safe and robust process. But also with agriculture, if you think of agricultural um, uh, change, and if you're going to then take a farm that you've been tilling with lots of fertilizer and you're going to put, basically move over to being a low-till um, mixed crop, you're going to have two to four years where your income is just going to drop while your land adapts. And banks and institute, financial institutions are not used to thinking about how do we fund those farmers. And there are millions of farmers who are going to need a three to four year bridge while they move from one time of agriculture to another. And so that's the third piece. We need to rethink how we finance the, 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 the change. We need to educate the population so that legislation can be enacted. And those three things together, if you get them right, we need all three then we can make a big difference. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's, thank you so much for that. My last question, what gives you hope? Yeah. Um, I get a lot of hope from the encouragement we get from some of the Fridays for Future groups that we're working with who are actively encouraging us to finish developing our Solar Champions program because they want to promote it to their students. That gives me hope. Yeah. And that just about compensates for every um, bursa head teacher who says we're just too busy to do solar, uh, even though the economics work. Yes. That just about compensates. So they give me hope. Yeah. Young people. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going, guys. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for, for your time and explaining your incredible solar for schools. It's it's brilliant to know and encouraging and it gives me hope that there are things out there that for young people to to grab onto and embrace and and yeah use as tools to to get us to the future that we know we need and that we deserve i think it's it's brilliant i wish there was things like this around when i was 15 i was hungry for, for all these solutions i think it's it's wonderful well, uh, i'd certainly encourage any listener to go along to our website solarforschools.co.uk um and type in the name of their school and see what the potential is and i should warn you that in the uk at the moment the economics are tough uh, because the subsidies are gone so we also then need to raise two to four thousand pounds worth of donations to make the economics work on most schools in the north but if you're in this large secondary school in the south the economics work beautifully still um so yeah that's great go and have a look and uh get in touch and we'd love to help you get solar on your school
That's brilliant. Robert, thank you so much. If, you're, if you've made it this far, um, yeah, follow our work at namineesolar.com. We've just rebranded with a new website and you can follow us on Instagram too, at namineesolar. Robert, it's been great to chat to you. Thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for, for Solar for Schools. Um, yeah, I'm going to be promoting it and telling all my colleagues about it and every school that, that we go, go into, um, I will be saying you need to go to Solar for Schools as well. So I think it's wonderful. Thank you. We should talk again about how we can incorporate the solar lights into some of the um, outreach programs and workshops too. That thank you, Francesca. Great talking thank to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, super look forward to chatting again. Thanks, Robert.